This is Bob Rourke with Business Leaders Podcast, and today we're incredibly fortunate. We have Harry Lay. He's the owner and president of Lay Professional Services and a good fishing buddy of mine. In fact, just caught a nine-pound largemouth on the Rodman impoundment at 11 o'clock on a 90-degree day. So with that introduction, Harry, thanks for taking the time. Bob, it's a pleasure to be with you, as always. Appreciate it. I tell you what, you know, for the folks out there, tell us a little bit about your business and who you serve. Well, Lay Professional Services, Inc. is headquartered in Tulsa. We provide services primarily to small businesses. The Chambers of Commerce define a small business as employers with 100 employees or less. And so I work with early stage, mature, small businesses, and I help them accomplish things they can't seem to accomplish without somebody's help. In thinking about it, so folks go, okay, I'm that small business and I probably need some help. Why should Harry be qualified? Because they don't know your history and Mm -hmm. I do. So let's dig in a little bit and talk about your journey prior to lay professional services. Good question. Most people, when there's something they want to change in their business, they want more income. They want more sales or more profits. And uh, when I talk about I help companies change whatever it is in their company they want to change, that's a pretty broad statement. Well, I've had a pretty broad range of experience. By education and training, Bob, I'm a CPA. I guess at this stage of my career, I'm a reforming CPA. But I spent 19 years in the profession, first of all, with Arthur Anderson Company as an auditor. After a few years there, two of their tax partners and I left. We formed our own firm in Tulsa. And after almost 10 years, we grew to be one of the larger local firms. And we were merged with or acquired by BDO Seidman. So I was a senior auto partner with them for two more years before I got an incredible opportunity. So, but in the, in the CPA world, I worked in virtually every industry, but specialized in construction type clients, both in commercial and residential real estate, real estate development. And uh, of course, my favorite client was Warehouser in the forestry company. You've heard some stories about that. But uh, an architecture firm contacted me in Tulsa about 1988 and asked if I would become their president and chief financial officer. I was a single parent with a 13-year-old daughter at the time, so why I took that job, uh, I'm not sure. I don't remember what motivated me to do that. It might have been my uh, concern about the SEC and their crackdown on on publicly held companies. I don't know, but it did take the the job and um, realized pretty quickly I didn't know what I was doing. I didn't know that much about business. That may sound odd for a 19-year CPA veteran. So I knew how to audit companies. I knew how to work with companies that somebody else had generated. I knew how to account for transactions, but how to motivate people and how to attract clients and retain them and motivate people. I was pretty clueless. And since it was an architecture firm, I knew how to speak accounting, but I didn't know how to speak architecture. Uh, somehow they survived uh, me for two years and didn't run me off. And uh, we changed the types of clients we were going after, we got a little company called Walmart, and the rest is history. We were lucky to hit them before the growth spurt. And so in about eight years, we had grown to 600 people with income of close to $100 million in fees, and we enjoyed a very healthy profit, uh, well over 35% in an industry that averaged 7%. 
And when you started out, if you care to share broad range of revenue when you first came on board? Well, the revenue was, was right at $4 million, but our clients were primarily local real estate developers. We had one client called Property Company of America, and we did build multifamily housing facilities for them, and we did retain that client for quite a while. But we just couldn't sustain the kind of business that we wanted. With architects, there's a lot of turnover, and uh, the average size of an architectural firm then and today was seven people. And uh, eventually a seven-person firm might land a big project like a hospital or a in addition to a hospital or a big bank or something, and they have to staff up. They may hire another seven people until that big project is over. Mm-hmm. Then they lay those people off, you're back to seven. So uh, numbers-wise, with 40 people, we were large, and we were pretty much decentralized. Uh, but we were able to focus on the primary owners of that firm, focus on what kind of clients we needed, and, and so we went after big box retail, and it worked. It was quite a ride. And I learned a lot, made every mistake a leader can possibly make. We actually hired some consultants to try to help us, and they didn't. So we just had to bounce off of corners and around off of sharp corners, and we did okay. We really did well. So in in the time frame that you went somehow or another, you competed for some business for Walmart. Mm-hmm. If you would, kind of go through that process and then – why there was an evolution in the relationship. Well, Walmart employed a number of architecture firms. And one of the things I noticed when we go to Bentonville, some of the brass that with whom we dealt were not in the best of moods all the time, almost depressed. And so I have this habit of asking clients that are disturbed, what keeps you up at night? And uh, eventually they responded, well, we can't get enough stores open. And for the folks that don't understand why that was important, why was the store opening speed important to Walmart at those days? Well, they were opening 40 stores a year, as I recall, which was quite a few back in the late 80s. But And they were growing. But, you know, Sam would have, Sam Walton would have uh, annual shareholders meetings and would talk about next year's revenue. And uh, they, if they didn't open as many stores as he had hoped, they'd fall short of those and He's lost some credibility in the marketplace, and uh, there was consequences if they didn't get as many stores open as, as leadership wanted. So we talked to them about that and about process, and we got the opportunity to take over the Super Center program to see if we could get as many Super Centers open in the next year as they wanted, and we did. And uh, eventually they gave us a Sam's Club and the Walmart stores, and we got it all. So we had to manage their programs, and that's when things really started to happen. We worked with uh, the internal architects, and we defined processes and how to get this done. And, and before long, they could open 100 stores a year and, and 150. And at the peak, we were helping Walmart open 300 stores a year, which was incredible. You know, for, and you and I have talked about this before. And, you know, they had 30-plus architecture firms, mm-hmm. and there was this typical – time frame to take and go f- to get a store out of the ground and get it up and operating. What was that typical time frame? Well, when we first asked them what, what, how long was the process from the time the board asked, uh, from the board said we'd like to open a, a Walmart store in, say, Rolla, Missouri, until the time that they got the keys to that, to that store, that's the real estate development process, they didn't know. 
They talked about how many days it took to build a building, but that was the construction phase of that. And I don't recall exactly how long it was, but it was well over two years before they could get that done. And we got that shortened down to less than 18 months and and, and predictable. And so there was a process by which uh, they would choose a piece of real estate, certain criteria that piece of real estate had to meet. Then there's entitlements. We had to get permits and all of that. And it was project management and program management. And, and we brought that to the table and, and worked with Walmart and, and really got it humming. It was really an interesting ride. And then we were able to replicate that process with uh, two chains of the Marriott Hotels, Home Depot, and even some work with the LDS Church. And those four clients uh, generated that close to $100 million in revenue. We we were talking earlier about some of the internal things that you would focus on to make sure that process was adopted and brought forward. And one of them you were talking about was a red line report. Oh, that was an internal management, an, an internal for us. Being a CPA, I wanted perfect financial statements. I wanted balance sheet to balance. I wanted the income statement to be accurate. I wanted everything to be completely cut off at the, at the right time. But as our company grew, the timeliness of the financial statements was more important than the accuracy of them. Drove my accounting department crazy. At the same time, we were very bottom line focused. And even though we made a whole lot more money than the the average firm, we were constantly looking for ways to improve profitability. And we had a profit sharing bonus plan in place. And when our architects understood that, they were looking for ways with which to be more efficient, how to increase our profits because they recognized it really made a difference. We paid our profit-sharing bonuses four times a year, once each quarter. And actually, uh, some of my architects came up with this, what we called a red line report. Uh, average age of our architects back then was 26. So we had some inexperienced people and They'd make sometimes the same errors repeatedly, and they were constantly getting out red lines. So we decided to track those and to publish them in, in, within the client teams. So if Harry made the same recurring error over and over again, Harry may not last long. And so it became a, a source of pride within the departments to reduce those red line reports. As a result, we became more efficient, and we made more money. Huge story, isn't it? You know, if, if you were to review that time frame and go key takeaways that if you were to if you were called back into a similar firm with a similar challenge in front of them what are the first two or three things that you would do inside that organization to try to replicate that success well most companies have a a business model they have an operating process by which they generate sales or complete projects and I'm not sure that they all have that process documented. Mm -hmm. In other words, here's step one, here's step two, step three, and that finishes a stage, and then you go to stage two. Manufacturing companies, I'm sure, do it really well, but it's probably the first thing I would want to do is let's diagram or list all the steps in a given project. And by doing that, sometimes you get from step five to step six. Step six, you look at it, especially me when I'm doing it with a client, I'm ignorant about your process. I said, well, Bob, why do we do step six? 
go step five, step six, step seven. I don't understand what what value step six is. And you start to explain it to me and go, well, you know, Eric, I think we've always done it that way. And so, uh, but by listing that out, you're looking for non-value added steps. And so, well, if we eliminated step six, what would that cost us? Nothing. It would cut about 20 minutes of time out. Oh, okay. And so, and I've done this in my profit improvement services a lot, is that um, especially in manufacturing, um, even even in CPA firms and law firms, there's processes that they use in order to produce things. And, and if I don't understand a step, I'll ask. And usually they have a good answer. But that's probably where I stop. start is looking for what are the non-value-added steps we do. And really, the quickest way to do it is ask the owner, Bob, who are the movers and shakers in your firm? What do you mean, movers and shakers? Well, you employ 90 people. And of those 90 people, who are the people who, if they come to you with a problem or with a recommendation or a concern, you're going to listen to them? Well, out of 90 people, there might be 15 that are really your key people. That's who I want to talk to because they're movers and shakers because they know what's going on. So if I can ask them where the problems are, they'll tell me. And that gives me an insight as where to start. You know, and, and things. So you went through the architecture firm, and at some point you made a decision to start your consulting firm. Mm-hmm. So when you first started your consulting firm, like many consultants, you go, you got to have a client at some point. So what was the process like from going from the hubbub of the architecture firm to starting your consulting firm? Oh, you're going to get me on tr- in trouble now? Yes, I am. You really are. And to any CPAs that are listening, I'm sure that none of you are going to be guilty of the things I'm going to describe. Bob, I don't know a profession that works any harder than CPAs. Uh, but the CPA profession is steeped in, in, in tradition. I was taught. I was coached. I was mentored. I'm stopping short of brainwashed by Arthur Anderson and BDO Seedman. But things like billing by the hour were, were standard keeping timesheets. I mean, they, these are principles. These are generally accepted accounting processes and procedures that you do not change. When I became the president and CFO of an architectural firm, talking about billable hours and realization per hour and cost per hour, they didn't have a clue what I was talking about. And uh, as we were working for companies like Walmart, and I'm looking at the amount of hours charged to a job. It just didn't make any sense to me that what's the correlation between the value we're providing a, an architectural client compared to how much time we spend. I mean, we could spend 60 hours on a client and generate very little value. Or on the other hand, if we were really efficient, we could generate a whole lot of value. And uh, so I started asking clients, what's the outcome worth? And so we got away from building by the hour and we build based on value. It was incredible. What a realization. And I'm thinking, wow, uh, you know, CPAs add so much value. What what if they tied the price of their services to the outcome that they're providing for their client? So we learned a lot. I learned a lot of things in the eight years I was, I was in the architectural industry. And I thought, wow, I will be God's gift to the accounting profession if I go to back to them and I want to help them improve their productivity and their profitability. So when I left the, the architecture firm, I wanted to go help accountants. Try selling consulting services to an accounting firm, and the first thing out of my mouth is, yeah, we can eliminate timesheets, and 
we're not going to build by the hour. And they tried to, some of them tried to get me committed for being out of my mind. So my target market didn't work out real well. I did have a few accounting firms that would employ me, but I had to look elsewhere. And so I did quite a bit of work with the Tulsa Chamber and became aware of how important small businesses were to the nation's economy. In Tulsa, we had, uh, I don't remember, over 3,000 members of the Chamber of Commerce, and probably 400 of them were the really big employers, well over 100 or 200 employees, and and, uh, they were the primary benefactors of the Chamber, and the rest were small businesses, and they really didn't participate in the program. So I've I've read that over 80% of, of our gross national product is produced by employers with less than 100 employees, and yet the failure rate is 76 to 90% in the first one to two years. So as corny as it may sound, I wanted to make an impact to small businesses, and so I targeted smaller firms, and that's how we got started. Did that yeah. help? Absolutely. And, you know, and I think about it, so for the small business owner, and he goes, okay, you know, I've, I've hired – Harry, what should they expect, and what's the process look like? Well, or- that that depends on where their where their pain points are, Bob. I I would say over the years I've learned that most of them are doing business instinctively. They learned it from their dad. They learned from some somewhere, and they work very very hard. But they don't really have a process that will methodically move them towards the type of company they want to have, and so. I developed some processes, again, based on my experience with the architectural firm. What do they need their company to look like to give them what they want? I call that their their vision. And so uh, typically my first engagement with a company has something to do centered around a process I call strategic planning. The irony that of that is we think strategically for a relatively short period of time, and then it becomes very tactical. But that's probably my spear thrust that gets me involved into a company. And by the time we go through what I call a strategic planning process, I get pretty well acquainted with, with the company. And they either love me or they don't. Fortunately, most of them are pleased with the results. And then that gets my foot in the door. And the longer I work with the company, the more I can add value to it. The uh, CEO, the founder, will have certainly competencies and capabilities that I don't have. I'll have education and experience that I don't have. But in order for them to move from where they are to where they want to be, invariably there are skill sets that they need they don't have. So I'm looking for those companies and leadership groups that need the skill sets I have that they don't have that they need. And then it's a match made in heaven. So the sum of my competencies and capabilities combined with yours the sum of you and me is probably believe one plus one equals seven. So, so when you show up at, at a company and there's a process, so you guys chat and they decide to engage your services, what's you walk through the door on Monday? What should they expect? Well, typically the first engagement is, a, is something like strategic planning, and I've got a fixed process for that. So uh, it begins with a three or four day process, and, and so it's, uh, do you want me to describe what that planning process yeah, looks like yeah. on a day-to-day basis? So we start internally with uh, helping that leadership group frame and quantify what I call the vision. The vision is a word picture of, of what does Bob Roark want his firm to look like by a certain date to give him what he wants. 
I usually start with the ownership group, and we want you know I want to have some idea how much money are they making? How much by money I mean how much compensation are these are these founders making? How much compensation would they like to be making in the next one to three years, and why? If they're in their thirties or forties or fifties or even sixties. I also want to know about when do you think you would like to retire? About how would you like to exit the company? And again, why? The why is very important to me because I can't control your behavior or their behavior. The only person's behavior I can control unless I've got a big fish on the line is mine. And so if I know what you want bad enough and I've earned the right to be your trusted advisor, once you stray off course, I can say, Bob, I thought you wanted to go northeast. Well, I do. Well, you're kind of going southwest to me, right? Why is that? No, thank you, Harry. And and you'll adjust, not because I gave you that advice. I never want any of my clients to take my advice just because I gave it to them. But if my advice is not going to get them to their vision faster, if my advice is not going to make them more money, they don't need to take it. So that's why we start in the beginning with that vision. We want to get that framed and quantified as a destination because when I get a leadership group to commit to that vision, now we have some advantages. First of all, it's a destination. So every decision that leadership team makes should be based on how is it going to affect that vision. And it also helps minimize conflict between two or more owners, even if it's a family-owned business, of which I do a lot. So rarely do I have spouses that have exactly the same vision or two partners who have exactly the same vision, much less three or four. But as long as those different visions are compatible, we're fine. Because as I help you reach our vision, you're going to get what you want and I'm going to get what I want. And so also having that vision is how I minimize conflict, especially in families. It's amazing the arguments can ensue because The father is going to convince his son that his son is wrong. The son is arguing, no, dad, you're getting old and you're out of touch. You're wrong. And when two individuals, family members or partners or leaders are arguing over who's right, we're all going to lose. What's right is what we should be discussing, and that's the vision. So I point out to father and or son, I thought you all wanted to go here. Now, the son has brought an opportunity and dad's not sure about it. Dad, why don't we ask the son, how is this opportunity going to get to the vision, get us to the vision faster or increase the bottom line? As the son explains it, the son may discover, hmm, this isn't as good an idea as I want to. Sorry, Dad. Or, in his infinite wisdom, the son shows him exactly how this is going to add another 3% to the bottom line today, and Dad's going to go, let's go. So that vision is a, is a real key piece, and that's what we do in day one, is frame and quantify that vision in such a way that we can measure, monitor, and report on our progress. Day two, we shift gears, and we are then focusing on the customer or the client. So what does this business do for which they want to get paid? They may have three or four different kinds of services. They may have one to 15 products. So we talk about what is it they want to do for which they want they get paid. We talk about... What are the needs they meet with each of those services or products? And then we ask the question, who needs them? And that process takes all day. But what we're starting to do is to uh, identify markets and segments of markets who need what these people are selling. All in the context of 
we want to generate another $2 million worth of sales next year. So we can take a look at these various markets and segments of the markets and determine which ones are we already selling to, which ones, which market channels are working and which ones are not. And out of that, we come up with a marketing sales problem that makes a real impact on the top and bottom line. We also talk about, you know, if you have a product or a service that's a solution to the given problem, what other solutions are out there? In other words, who are we competing against? And I want to know what are those unique competencies and capabilities that this competitor has that we can't touch. I don't want to compete with them in their strong suit. Going back to Walmart, for example, they sell more for less. And so it'd be really tough for a, for a competitor in the retail business to compete with Walmart on price. Target tried that for years and failed, and they finally gave up and said, we're going to go after a different market niche. They bought a higher quality product that costs more, and now they're competing very well with Walmart. Is that the kind of a deal? Third day, we quit thinking about strategic things, and we get real tactical. What are the short-term, what are the things we need that the leadership group wants to get done in the next 30 to 45 days? I can remember times we were, when we were doing strategic planning, we'd try to identify short-term goals for an entire year. <laughs> but things change so fast today by the time. If we, if we try to list out everything we want to get done in the next quarter, half of those will be superseded by the time we get the first half of them finished. New opportunities that we didn't know about on day one will crop up and supersede the others. And so that's the process piece. The short-term goals of a strategic planning process will change almost weekly if not quicker. You know, for, for the folks listening and they go, wow, am I Harry's ideal client? <laughs> what does your ideal client look like? Ideal client. I wonder how many ideal clients I've <laughs> ever had, Bob. The, um, a good client for Harry is uh, a company that's well into revenue. They're making some money, but leadership knows they're under, underperforming compared to their potential underperforming to the point that they're willing and they're able to change what and how they do things. There's lots of companies that are underperforming, but by golly, the way they do things, they're, they're, they're just not going to change. And so I, I, I look for the willingness and the ability of people to change what and how they do things. And I've turned down some work where I perceived that the leadership was so entrenched in, in what and how they do things that I just walked away. For the folks who are going, I need to talk to Harry. How do they reach out to you? Well, the, the easiest way to be go to the website, it's www.laypsi.com, and they'll, they'll get a – it's a website. Yeah, it's L-A-Y. L-A-Y-P-S-I.com. But it gives them an opportunity to read what my clients say about me. If they go to my website, they need to understand I did not write it. <laughs> it was updated a, a little over a year ago because my clients – thought it needed updating. And so the nice thing said about Harry came from them, not me. They can email me at uh, Harry, H-A-R-R-Y-L, at lay, L-A-Y, P-S-I dot com. Or call me at, uh, I'll give my number. They can can, can find me on LinkedIn. And uh, find me on LinkedIn. And uh, I'd love to hear from them. You know, shifting gears a little bit, you know, in in looking out over, Reading material. What's the most recent book or most influential book that's impacted your thought process recently? Uh, I guess that Bassmasters magazine doesn't qualify there, right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> By far the most influential book 
that I've ever read that's impacted my practice and my habits is a book by David Meister. Meister is spelled M-A-I-S-T-E-R. David's a Scottish attorney, and he's written a number of books, two that really impacted my life. First of all, was True Professionalism. And Bob, when you read that book, uh, there's nothing in that book that you haven't read or heard before. But he has a style, and there's a sequence in which he, he writes things that anyone in the service industry, I mean, anybody should read it. I insisted that my CPAs and my architects read that book. The book is probably an inch to an inch and a half thick, but mine's about three inches thick because I've marked it, underlined, highlighted so many things in there. I had the opportunity to meet David Meister at an Institute of Profit Advisors seminar many years ago. And to make a long story short, we ended up having dinner together one night. And so we talked about his book, True Professionalism, and what an impact it had on my life and my firm's lives. And uh, he said, well, what do you think about my new book, Harry? I said, I'm sorry, Mr. Meister, I'm not familiar with it. What's the name of it? He said, it's The Trusted Advisor. And I said, well, I didn't know that. I'll, I'll get you one. He said, oh, I'll get you one tomorrow. He was speaking the next day. And I said, what's it about? He looked at me and grinned. He said, it's the story of your life. And so when I read The Trusted Advisor, it was very emotional for me because it was very flattering. It's probably the best compliment I've ever been uh, paid. And he doesn't really know me, but we just, other than the conversation at dinner, but based on his perceptions of who I am, somehow I made that impression on him. And, And actually, if you were to ask me what I aspire to become with each of my clients, it's their trusted advisor. No one hires a trusted advisor. We have to earn it. So the first time we met our our wives, we didn't propose to them. <laughs> you know, it takes time for that relationship to go to that point, and that's that's a trusted advisor. And so that's those two books have really impacted my my life. You know, in, in looking back over your career, other than the failure to set the hook on a couple of fish <laughs> I most recently witnessed, what failure at the time of parent failure has served you or your practice best that set you up for success going forward? Well, I think it was an experience. I, I, it was a failure. I really thought when I started my, my current company, CPAs were going to be the market that, uh, that I would serve. And I knew that I was God's gift to that profession. The profession turned me down. And what I learned from that is, was reminded once again, we as service providers don't define our value. Our clients do. And even though I modestly, honestly, sincerely believe there wasn't a CPA firm that I couldn't help, they weren't willing to change what and how they do things to get that. So I think that's influenced me more than I know because I, my clients tell me I do a heck of a job in, in meeting or exceeding their expectations, which I insist on learning before I go to work with them. You know, in, in looking over time, if you could take and put an ad on page one, and let's say of the local business paper, sharing your message or advice, what would it say and why? Well, that's a good question. You should have warned me about that. <laughs> if I took an ad, so who's it, the ad addressed to? It's on the front page of the local business paper. Um, I'm sure you're serious about that. I'll have to think about that one, Bob. Um, what would I say? Um, I'm not sure. Well, that's fine. I'm not sure what I would say. <laughs> and and for, for you folks out there, uh, that would be the first time that I've asked Harry something that he didn't have a quick <laughs> rejoinder for. So I'll have to keep that in mind. 
For you, looking back on your allocation of time or initiative, what's helped you and lay professional services the most and why? Process. Process and clarity on what, what is the outcome that a client expects. There's a term I'll, I use now called MIO. What's so massively important? What's the massively important outcome that a client wants to achieve and why? Uh, again, because I can't control their behavior, if I know what the massively important outcome is and I can show them how to get that, then they might get it done. So um, I definitely want to know what, what is it about their business they want to change. For you looking over your inventory of habits, what would you say is your most unusual habit or what others may consider out of the ordinary that's helped you and your company most and why? A habit that helps helps with the company the most. I hope it's a habit. When something needs to get done, uh, my ability to focus on that, and I get it done, and I get it done fast. I admit I'm a procrastinator. Uh, if it weren't for deadlines, I don't know that I didn't get anything done, but when it's time to produce, we get it done. Over the past few years, what belief or protocol have you established in your company that's most impacted you or your company's success? The commitment to do whatever it takes to meet a client's expectations. You know, if you were to come into a situation where you were offering advice to a new CEO or president of a company, that's assuming that role for the first time, what advice would you offer and why? <laughs> Determine exactly what the performance expectations are of the people who hired him or her. Titles are interesting. CEO, chief executive officer. Uh, there's probably a job description for that position that includes roles and responsibilities. But I would make certain that the board or the founder or whoever hired them to do it, what is it exactly they want to get done? By when? For you, what do you think is the most common misconception about you or your role in lay professional services? The biggest misconception? Mm -hmm. That I, some people perceive that I'm a perfectionist. And all I do is work. And uh, I will admit there's some evidence that might convict me of that <laughs> perception, but it's, it uh, certainly is not true. As you know, I do like to have a good time. <laughs> Looking over the past few years, what would or should you have said no to and why? A number of events uh, that I was invited to participate in a number of conferences that I was uh, invited or encouraged to attend. The uh, I'm, I'm committed to self-improvement. Um, I enjoy associating with, with other business professionals, but I've jumped and leaped before I thought. And so I have wasted time at events that I've, I've attended that I really thought were going to help me, and they were just a waste of time. Does that make sense? It does. In the day-to-day -day operation, of your company, what's the personal habit or self-talk dialogue that keeps you focused? The self-talk and dialogue. Do what you say you're going to do and and relax later. The uh, as you know, I I love to fish, and there is an, and I'm not trying to be funny here. I'm very serious, but there's a Bass Masters website, especially when they're when the elites are having a tournament, and I want to follow it. It's really a distraction. And I have to I have to continually remind myself I've got work to do, and you can read about the fishing tournament tomorrow. So that's it's a silly example, but I having fished with you, I understand. The 
I do take it pretty seriously. <laughs> Sorry. You know, mm. for you, what's a quote that you find meaningful or one that you use frequently? A quote? Mm-hmm. Set the hook, Bob. <laughs> um, I'm not sure. Uh, what do you think? What quotes have you heard me that you, that you can that you can say on this on this recording? I think you talk a lot, just from my experience, about making sure you establish the vision and the mechanism of getting there. I do ask my clients frequently, uh, "How am I doing?" Are you pleased with the pace? Are you know, am I going too slow? Am I going too fast? Are we focused on the right things? Because of, um, I don't know if it's my personality. I don't know if it's because of my age or reputation or what. People tend to be a little timid about saying, Harry, I wish you would do less of that or more of this or something like that. And I think I'm basically perceived as a nice guy. And so I... I ask constantly, how are we doing? And it, and and usually that's when I start getting a clue that I need to change something that I'm doing. You know, if I was to talk to colleagues or past uh, clients and ask them what you're best at, what would they say? And how do you utilize that particular strength on a day-to-day basis? That's a good question. And I know exactly how to answer that. My clients perceive me as uh, being very honest, straightforward, I do what I say I'm going to do. Therefore, they trust me and they like working with me. It's hard to say that to you, but that when I ask them, why are you still with me five years after that three-day planning workshop? And the most frequent answer is, we like working with you, Harry, and we trust you because you're going to tell us what we need to hear and what we want to hear. I would like to hear them say how good my processes work and how much more money I've made them and all that. But that the most frequent thing is that they trust me and they like working with me. You know, this is you know, for me thinking about and watching you fish. <laughs> Do you think there's a parallel between running a business and fishing? Well, of course I do. Obviously, I enjoy I enjoy the sport, but um, I focus on catching the biggest fish I can possibly catch. If I take a, a young person or a novice or a relative, I ask them, you know, do you want to fish for quantity or quality? And 99% want to catch as many fish as we can catch. And I'm going to bend over backwards to help them do that. And so when I'm taking guests fishing, I, I want to do everything in my power to help them. But what for me, I want to catch the biggest fish in the lake. That takes uh, skill and experience and concentration. And, and so I do that. And so in serving a client, it's the same thing. What does a client expect me to do? And so The thing on. that people don't know about you is your preparation <laughs> on fishing. And I think that parallels what you do for business people. There's a handful of lakes in Oklahoma that you fish. Mm-hmm. What is it that you've done to organize your fishing tackle? <laughs> it's organized in such a way that uh, if, I'm, if I'm going to a, a – a given lake, uh, what kind of water is it? Deep, shallow, clear, murky. And I take the gear required for that and I prepare my equipment so that when I'm on the water, I'm not looking for anything. It's, it's all ready to go. I want to maximize keeping my lure in the water and I want to minimize any breakdowns, any distractions. And I can get pretty intense on the water, as you witnessed. <laughs> so... Um, there's definitely preparation. 
so that when I get on the water, I have exactly the rod and reel I want with the same with the right pound tests on it and the, and the type of lures that, that are going to fit the conditions. And they're pre-rigged, so I don't have to waste any time changing lures. And woe be to the area around me if I have a backlash. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, and, and for me and in, in talking to some of the folks that you work with, I don't think you approach serving them any differently mm-hmm. is that you're prepped and ready to go. And so, Harry, Thank you, sir. you know, I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking time to be on this episode. And I am fortunate to have watched Harry catch three nine-pound-plus, four nine-pound bass. He had to keep you. You remind me, four <laughs> nine-pound bass and two trips on the Rodman and Palman in Florida, and that's I'd, been a privilege. I'd rather be lucky than good. <laughs> <laughs> well, on that, we will call it good. Harry, thanks so much. Thank you, Bob.